I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I am your co-host and renter for the week, Dean Detloff. And I'm your other co-host, Matt Vernico. I don't rent. What's up? What's up? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You've uh, you've won the commodity that so many people are asking for, that good housing commodity. Um, this past week, you've probably seen it. A lot of right-wing Christians decided they wanted to talk publicly uh, and embarrass themselves on Twitter by <laughs> making some comments that demonstrated a, a pretty wild lack of self-awareness, empathy, and, and good Christian love, specifically around issues of housing and rent and being a landlord and so on. Uh, that's right. We're going to make a whole episode talking about Dave Ramsey and his bad ideas about raising rent and evicting people being a, a good Christian path to take. And I think it is a legitimately interesting conversation. I mean, on the one hand, it's easy to dunk on some of these people and to say, you know, this is a kind of brazen capitalist ideology and you can sort of see you can probably intuit the violence behind it and so on. But it's always a good opportunity to break down what actually is going on in a capitalist economy and why should housing not be a commodity relationship and so on. So we're going to get to all of that. Uh, but uh, first, Matt, are, is there any housekeeping that we need to do? It's our second podcast in the new year. Uh, where are we at here in January? <laughs> it's January. Things are bleak out there. Um, everyone's sick. That's it. <laughs> maybe it'll get maybe it'll get better. You never know. Things could always turn around. That's true. That's true. I appreciate that. Very important. Uh, maybe caveat. That's a good energy to bring to this podcast. Yeah. Um, hopefully you're not sick out there. But if you are, welcome to the show. <laughs> we hope you feel better for sure. Um, if you are sick, though, <laughs> just sit back, relax and let, let's tell you about Dave Ramsey and his weird thing that he said. <laughs> we can talk about Dave Ramsey's whole thing in a minute. But let me just tell you, in case you are an offline person, if you're not if you're not like us. The gist of what Dave congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. The gist of like what Dave Ramsey said uh, was, you know, like something like this. If Dave Ramsey raises rent to the market rate and that displaces somebody, it's not really his fault. It's the market's fault, <laughs> which is a very silly type of mental gymnastics to make. Right. Like, obviously, he's responsible for it. But he wants to kind of pass the blame off uh <laughs> about you know any possible uh violence as eviction uh to the market he doesn't want to be responsible for it so he just did that um oh maybe if you don't know who dave ramsey is even it might be good to explain who who that person yeah. is. yeah i i didn't even consider you might not know <laughs> right. uh dave ramsey is a right-wing christian influencer around um finances he's like a big sort of like personal budget kind of guy yeah i mean i think he has like a tv show and he talks about money and investing but he's also a christian he's not afraid to talk about his faith he doesn't care about the woke mob and how they might be coming for him it's not as one of his concerns mm -hmm. yeah maybe a few other things he is i think uniquely influential in evangelical circles like if you go to an evangelical church and you attend like a financial literacy yeah. class it'll be dave ramsey's uh, financial will... peace university yes Exactly. Yeah. Um, and he has a number of principles that are kind of like Christian economic principles in capitalism that are all very weird. Like, for example, his big thing is like you shouldn't have any debt at all, which, you know, debt is bad for sure, but not for the reasons that 
Dave Ramsey thinks. Um, he also advocates like a sort of lifestyle of like extreme austerity. So the idea is like, you know, if something like it's it's the avocado toast mentality, yeah. right? You should never, ever indulge in anything that makes you feel marginally better in your miserable life, because uh, every latte you don't buy from Starbucks is one more. I don't know. <laughs> one more latte in the bank for your uh for your future investments and and so on. So uh it's all wrapped up in some very boring and bogus capitalist ideology, but uh the the point really is that he is like a uh, he has a massive massive following in evangelicalism. I mean, he runs a big financial institution as well. I mean, there's just like all kinds of stuff going on right. with this guy. Um but yeah, I mean, that's a that's a a good way to put it though. Like his whole um his whole like position as like a figure is situated between like this weird finance guy world and also uh very conservative Christianity. Definitely. Um, it, it's like, it's a really insidious thing because like on the face, if you're just like walking into like the financial literacy thing at your church, which is bizarre to begin with, but like, you know, it wouldn't sound necessarily political to you. It wouldn't sound like necessarily scandalous. It would sound very boring. Like it's just like, he's just a guy telling you how to be good with money. But but there's lots of extremely bizarre ideologies wrapped up in that because he's not just telling you about your money. He's telling you a story about the economy in general that ends up being um, bad, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I guess it, maybe it's worth mentioning, too, that um, there are like all kinds of, uh, I don't know, shady and yucky business practices at Dave Ramsey's actual businesses. Like, oh, yeah, I don't know, fire, firing people for sexist reasons. Um Lots of like bad conversation that comes out around like holiday parties and stuff like that. Like lots of just really toxic workplace stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, as we just mentioned, he's also uh, a landlord. And I can't imagine having Dave Ramsey as your landlord or his uh, company, at least, is probably very fun. Oh, but uh, anyway, <laughs> all that to say, there's like there's lots of other Christian gossip, I guess you can find out about Dave Ramsey if, if that's your thing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the short of it is he's here to tell you about your money and his story about it is bad. Okay, great. We know all about Dave Ramsey now and his weird situation, uh, the weird place that he sits within Christian culture. Uh, let's let's get back to it, though. Okay, so Dave Ramsey, he said this wild thing about um, his rental properties that, you know, if he raises the rent to the market price, which is a thing that landlords, they love to do. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and uh, someone, you know, has to go live somewhere else. He de he displaces a family, a person, whatever. It's not his fault. It's the market's fault. So clearly that's a that's a bonkers way of thinking. But um, beyond just Dave Ramsey, um, when he said this, a lot of other right wing Christians decided that that was a good time that they were going to either double down on Dave Ramsey's claim or even go further beyond it, which I think is surprising. <laughs> but they <laughs> listen, they did it um, anyway. So. They the claim that like, you know, markets are just sort of like neutral actors in themselves um, and, you know, people don't really have much to do with them or that a person like Dave Ramsey can't be held accountable or like morally responsible for what he does economically. This is like obviously a lot of magical thinking, right? It's it's bonkers to think that the economy is just people doing stuff, right? Like, right. I, I mean, it's it's a it is a human interaction. And of course, there are all kinds of like. um very interesting things that are caught up in it. Like, I mean, you know, like value chains and like, um, I mean, all kinds of computational systems. It's not just like, you know, two guys trading money at like some kind of base level. There's sort of a, a, a really nuanced um, and complex system. But at the end of the day, it is a thing that people intervene in. Like, that's that's it. Right. It's a thing that people have created. It's something that could be different if they wanted it to be. But um, a lot of people on the right, right wing Christians, especially coming to Dave Ramsey's rescue, think that, no, that's not the case. Um, the uh, the economy is either a neutral force in the world that you just kind of have to deal with or even worse, <laughs> the capitalist economy is actually good and you should just kind of embrace it. Right. Those are the two things. But uh, before we get into right. all of the all of the, the thick of it, let's just talk about what Dave said. Our, our guy, Dave. Uh, Dean, do you want to read this quote from Dave here? Sure, yes. I will read what Dave Ramsey said, and I'll read it so you can hear it in my voice and not Dave Ramsey's voice. Uh, Dave said, if I raise my rent to be market rent, that does not make me a bad Christian. I did not displace that person out of that house if they can no longer afford it. The marketplace did. The economy did. The ratio of the income that they earned to their housing expense displaced them. I didn't cause any of that. 
And so you are not displacing them. You are taking too much credit for what is going on. I guess he must be responding to some yeah. landlord who had one <laughs> one miraculous moment of conscientious reflection and Dave Ramsey saying, please don't listen to Jiminy Cricket uh, for a second. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the question was framed around, you know, can Christians be landlords? And if they evict somebody, is that uh, a Christian thing to do? Um, so uh, Dave says it doesn't matter. You can be a good Christian and a great landlord, and you can even be a good Christian and uh, raise the rent on somebody. And if that if that causes them to be kicked out of the place they live or have to go find some other place to live, ah, well, it sucks for them. You know, you're not responsible. <laughs> somebody else is. And like in one way of thinking, I mean, that's true. Dave Ramsey himself is not in charge of the economy himself, right? But he is in charge of like you know market rent. He could he could just not. He could not. He can make affordable housing for people if he wanted to. Or, I mean, like, you know, the whole or you can throw off the whole idea that uh, house, housing should be a commodity. I mean, in general. Right. There's a lot of assumptions being made, I think, in in Dave Ramsey's very bizarre statement, um, not to mention that the that you can't intervene in the economy. But there's a lot going on here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is a lot going on here. We'll talk maybe more later on about. uh I guess how housing is wrapped up in capitalism and what it means that ha that housing is a commodity and how it operates in a capitalist system. Cause I think all that's really important, but I think just to get the basics on the table here, I think what's really fascinating to me about Dave's comments is it is a way for him to, uh, to shut down that moment of conscience, right? Uh, presumably if Dave really did evict a family from their house by raising their rent, He's probably not the person going down to their house saying, sorry, you have to leave and watching as they gather all their belongings and go. Right. He doesn't want to be a fly on the wall of that kind of tragic scene uh, because I mean, maybe he does. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm overestimating his uh, <laughs> his ability to feel bad for other people. But like uh, the the point that Dave Ramsey really is making is like, sure. Yeah, I guess it's probably sad. But like this is just the way things are. Right. This is a kind of inescapable economic logic. And at the end of the day, if the family wants to stay, they should just make more money. Right. So the idea is he's putting a lot of um, barriers between his own responsibility, his own uh, agency. And if there's anybody to blame, it's the person who is actually victimized in this situation. Right. And I think this is a pretty standard, like evangelical logic, even outside of economics. Right. It's uh, kind of the story we tell in evangelicalism, even around salvation, right? It's not uh, <laughs> it's not God's fault that you're a bad person or having a hard time or whatever. All the burden of responsibility is on you. It's not anybody else's fault. And you kind of have to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and so on. When you put it that uh, way. It's so you see that the the, uh, the fluidness of like weird evangelical theology around uh, like the sort of, you know, your personal responsibility for your sins and your life. It does bleed into the capitalist yeah. theology a little bit too explicitly all a little bit totally. too on the nose right <laughs> yeah i mean it is uh for sure symptomatic of and um a kind of engine of neoliberalism mm -hmm. right like it all comes down to personal responsibility you uh you have, you got to monetize your salvation i guess is kind of what happens in, in dave ramsey's system but anyway all that to say it's really interesting because there maybe we'll talk about this more later too but there's a weird affinity with marxism here uh, stay with me. <laughs> the affinity being that uh, at the end of the day, it's true that the market is sort of acting according to an inner logic. And it's not like, you know, Dave Ramsey doesn't control market forces and neither does the person being priced out of their home, even if there are other things that are within their control, mm -hmm. right? They could choose not to follow market logic if they if he really wanted to, right? There's no law that says you have to go along with it. But uh, the fact that the market does kind of have its own inertia and capitalists are swept up into that inertia, no matter whether they are good people or bad people, that is also a Marxist point, but one that we can maybe drill into later and kind of figure out why it leads to a different sort of judgment. Yeah, totally. I mean, the the market is not immutable, right? It's a thing that right. that you can intervene in and people do intervene in all the time, <laughs> constantly, right? Um, but it's always... It, when it is done, it is always done along the lines of the internal logic of capitalism about accumulation of expansion and growth, um, about, you know, like do, setting up a setting up a new system that shovels more money towards people that already have a lot of money and like, you know, taking it from people who explicitly do not. I mean, the whole thing to me is like really morally gross um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, not the morally gross part isn't that uh, Dave Ramsey doesn't really 
know how like economics work or something or how markets work. That's not really the gross part. But the yeah. gross part is that he's trying to sort of evade his personal responsibility in those situations to not be a complete right. dirtbag landlord. And that's what rubs me the wrong way so much. Um, I hate that. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Dave Ramsey, like you said, he probably does not go down to like the, <laughs> the eviction to like take it all in as it happens. But man, people do lose their homes and it's, I mean, it's it's violence. There's like no other way to put it. Like kicking somebody out of their house, kicking a family out of their house, um, w- whether it is through like a straightforward eviction or just sort of like softly because they have to go live somewhere else because mm-hmm. they can't afford it. That's like that's a form of violence. You're uprooting someone's life, and um, like that's not okay. That's not not okay to do. But it's like the norm, right? People don't think of that as a political situation, but it is in fact right. that. Yeah, and the the flip side of it, too, being stuck in a crappy housing situation because you can't afford to move um, and sort of having to live with a bad landlord or live in a, uh, you know, a place with an absentee landlord or, um, uh, you know, just a a, a bad spot in general. Um, That is also a, a kind of symptom of these market forces, right? And the way that Dave Ramsey presents it here is the market is just kind of doing its thing. All these other stories that happen around it uh, that's just, I don't know, somebody's personal fault. And that is such a like, I, I don't know, the word that comes to mind for me is childish, but I don't want to put it that way because children are like smarter than <laughs> they have that. a stronger <laughs> sense of like and fairness good. and justice. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but the reason I say it's childish is like it is an extremely like alarmingly simple and naive way of looking at the world. Totally. Like you have to be, you know, you have to refuse to grow up, I guess, or refuse to have a level of maturity if you want to double down on that way of thinking about the world. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think it's a hard sell for people to believe a, to believe like housing is a really important social justice issue. But like it really does matter, right? Like if you're forced to live in like a place where rents are low, there's probably a reason that the rents are low, right? Like the building is mm-hmm. is awful or like maybe there are like, you know, health hazards near the building, like all kinds of, um, I don't know, in um, in the place where I live, there's all kinds of like um, extremely bad environmental factors in poor, uh, like lower income neighborhoods. Uh, so it's just like, I don't know, the where you live has a real effect on your health and your like your livelihood and your well-being, all these things. So I don't know, like making it so somebody has to live in a certain area because otherwise, you know, otherwise they couldn't live at all. <laughs> That's violence, man. It's mm-hmm. bad. It sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, tell me about some of the other discourse going on here. Cause I want to get to figuring out what's really going on in the housing story. And I guess that means sitting through other bad stories about yeah. it. So, I mean, all kinds of people came out of the woodwork to defend Dave Ramsey, um, which like, why? Why bother? <laughs> but some people, some people, they just, they got to do it. You know, um, they love this awful capitalist system and they're going to defend it to their own death um, or at least the deaths of other people. So uh, a lot of people did come out sort of on Twitter, but I thought that the, you know, like people say things on Twitter all the time and Twitter is sort of like, a, you know, things come and go. It's a very fluid kind of place. Um, somebody will say something and whatever, it's gone. They delete the tweet. Who knows? Um, but I looked for, I, I tried to find a good place that, um, that, that like a good crystallization of this discourse. And I did find one um, <laughs> on the Acton Institute blog. Um, let's see. The Acton Institute is, uh, well, if you've listened to our podcast before, you, we've, you've probably heard us talk about it, but it's a libertarian Christian think tank, um, in Grand Rapids. And they always have a very bizarre take on economics, on socialism. They're really afraid of it. They don't like it. They don't even like, I mean, they don't like anything, but anyways, they think that the, the market is sort of like the best, the best tool you have in society to achieve justice. That's the argument that they make again and again, and no surprise that we think that they're wrong, but that's okay. And it's a it's a sort of libertarian thing too, right? It's not just like regular old capitalism; it's like even worse. That's right. It is even worse than regular old capitalism. <laughs> it is a libertarian thing. <laughs> so there is an article that um, is written about this exact sort of Twitter hubbub on Acton Institute. It's called "Dave Ramsey, Christian Witness and the Morality of Markets" by Rachel Ferguson. I don't know who that is, but she wrote the blog, so she's responsible for it, I guess. Um, okay, so the blog is very it's a it's such an okay, if if Dave Ramsey's tweet is a very if that if Dave oh my god, if Dave Ramsey's tweet is like a window into the strange interworkings of his mind, 
this blog is even more so of like Christian libertarians or Christian free market people. I don't know exactly how they describe themselves, but probably something like that. Christians who are interested in economic liberty. How about that? So a big chunk of the Acton Institute article is trying to explain what Dave Ramsey said and contextualize, you know, the whole thing, which there's, you know, there's more to the quote than we gave. It was sort of during an interview and that's, I guess, fine. Um, uh, the the article does go out of way to say that like Dave Ramsey wouldn't uh, he wouldn't want to evict somebody and put them out on the street, um, but I mean I'm sure he has. Doesn't sound, <laughs> it doesn't sound that way. I'm sure he has. <laughs> I don't know how you could be a landlord and not evict somebody ever. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But anyways, no big deal. Um, okay, but the article goes on to um, retell the narrative about mom and pop landlords. <laughs> If you recall that story, that was a big sort of narrative that you might remember from the um, the eviction moratorium period of the COVID pandemic. It seems like such a long time ago. Um, but, you know, um, when people were getting rental assistance, when people were uh, when there was, an, when there was an actual eviction moratorium in many cities um, or nationally. Right. People were, were worried. Um, all these think pieces were coming out about, you know, um, corporate landlords, whatever, but you gotta, you gotta be worried about these mom and pop landlords, the people that just own a building or something. And I think that that story about mom and pop landlords is an important narrative because it like sets up landlords as people who will face a lot of economic hardship due to irresponsible tenants. Right. So Mm -hmm. it tells a particular story. It paints a really particular picture. Um, you know, people mostly think of, um, low-income people and their crappy landlords but this is trying to do that flip on you where it's trying to um you know turn the turn the tables it's not the uh not the tenants who you need to feel sorry for it's these poor landlords um and it's such a really frustrating i think narrative mostly because well for a lot of reasons i mean the the mom and pop landlord conversation is basically like you know like the small business owner argument around um around raising the minimum wage or something right like the argument is that, uh, you know, there are small time people who will end up being hurt by these like big pieces of national legislation. And you should actually feel sorry for these people who otherwise, you know, you wouldn't. Right. Like the owner of your local, I don't know, <laughs> you know, Burger King or whatever. They own, they own a Burger King franchise. They're a small business owner. Uh, normally you wouldn't have any sympathy for them, but you really should because you're going to put them out of business. A small family business, the Burger King is um, in, the, in the same way, you know, uh, a small time mom and pop quote unquote landlord, um, you should feel sorry for them actually because they're often getting the raw end of the deal, right? That's the whole thing. The burger lords. The burger lords. I mean, the thing about both of these types of stories, like, you know, the the mom and pop landlord or the small business owner, is that like the claims to extreme economic hardship because of these types of things are like I don't know. They're true to some extent, for sure. Right. Like because restaurants really do go out of business or landlords have to stop being landlords. But like that, it's like an overwhelming problem or something is, you know, based on a lot of cherry pick data. It's not like it's not like the majority of cases, you know. Um, So even in cases where it might be true, it's hard to find it like that compelling of a story that really makes me care about these people. I don't know. Like, of course I care about them uh, on a, on a human level. I'm a good, I'm a good Christian humanist. Um, they're great. I'm, I'm sure they have some kind of redeeming quality, but um, <laughs> I want the best for them. But at the same time, I don't feel bad that they might have to, um, I don't know, take a hit on the rent for a bit. I don't feel bad that like uh, they have to pay their workers more. I don't feel bad about that part. It does not seem like a very compelling story. Um, given my experiences and the people around me's experiences. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, uh, for every true story, potentially, of like a a small-time landlord having to sell a property because they can't maintain it anymore, there are, you know, literally like thousands upon thousands of stories of tenants who are like wrongfully evicted every year. So yeah, you know, that or I mean, just like, you know, awful landlords who let buildings burn down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New York. Exactly, yeah. Right. um, It's just... Um, you know, it's 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 such a to me a PR type of tactic to try to sort yeah. of spin the uh, sympathy in the other direction. I, and I, I'm not buying it, I guess, is what I'm here to say. Um, yeah. Wouldn't it be better, though, if there was a whole system where you didn't have to be the franchise owner of a Burger King or you didn't have to be a landlord? Like, wouldn't it be cool if there was sort of a different way, <laughs> a different social organization? <laughs> I think it would be. I find that more compelling. I agree. 
um, a world without landlords in I, general. I have to agree. <laughs> you, ha- you have to. You are morally obligated. Well, okay. The market's compelling. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Um, okay, so there, that whole thing is going on in the article. It's just, uh, it's there. It's a big part of it. Um, okay. But fr- from there on out, though, the article takes a little bit of a different spin. Um, Rachel Ferguson, the author, and um, I guess a representative of the Acton Institute in some capacity, goes on to claim that Christians can't control the market. That's true. But Christians ought to actually embrace the market because it's a good and efficient allocator of resources. So um, I think this is this is an important part of the article because it's not even just the Dave Ramsey point. It's not like that they're just defending Dave Ramsey. It's an, it's actually that like um, it's not that Dave, it, it's that Dave Ramsey didn't go far enough. Right. <laughs> like he should have gone farther. Dave Ramsey shouldn't have just said, like, uh, you know, the market is a thing and I'm not responsible for it. Dave Ramsey should have said um, the market is a thing that I can't control. And actually, I love that about the market. <laughs> Right. It's uh, the the point that the Acton Institute wants to make here in their article is not that the economy isn't good or bad, that, you know, it's not just some kind of neutral actor in the world that you just have to kind of deal with. Um, But in fact, it's actually just good. (laughs) And like, that's the point. Um, So the bottom line is that for um, well, the the bottom line here is that like it's not just sorry, man, I'm getting like out of sorts about it. No, no, no. Okay. Well, instead of me just kind of like uh, recapping it, I'm going to read these three different pieces of it and we can kind of talk through exactly what's happening in this article. How about that? Yeah, sure. Okay. Rachel Ferguson writes, the bottom line is that for any true Christian, everything we own really belongs to God and must be used for his kingdom purposes. We agree. That's great. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Okay. But she continues and ruins it. She ruins the agreement. We steward our resources well when we buy and sell at market rates with honesty and integrity in the majority of cases, because that's how we provide goods and services and jobs for the most people in the most affordable way. Hmm. Yeah, an interesting, an interesting turn, right? Uh, Of course, Mm -hmm. all things really belong to God, but actually (laughs) um, we can buy and sell them uh, with honesty and integrity because that's how you get the things that people need to them. Um, notably, right. notably so. <laughs> um, that's God's kingdom purposes. Yeah, that's right. Um, which is uh, really baffling to me, given that the, I mean, there's such a housing shortage everywhere in the entire world. I mean, I guess at least in the United States and probably the same thing in Canada. I mean, for sure, right? Like, that's it. <laughs> um, hard, hard for me to stomach that one. I, I don't understand. Uh, it, you know, if it's the case that the market is so good at allocating resources, then like... Um, why is the world looking the way it does? <laughs> right. Okay. So she goes on to say this. I can't fully defend the idea that one can be a good Christian business person in a market economy in a brief post like this one. It's You see, it's a complex idea, that one. You have to really <laughs> take some time to write that one down. Okay. But anyways, it's worth noting that many of the suggestions made to counter Ramsey seem short on both basic economics and business experience. If charging the market rate is wrong, how much should one charge? And how does one decide? Hmm. Would the poor... What an impossible question. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Would the poor be better off if only non-Christians were landlords? How does, charging in- <laughs> how does charging interest work in an agricultural society versus a service and information economy? The last one seems kind of like a non sequitur to me. But, Dean, what do you think about that yeah. one? Um, <laughs> uh, how... I mean, first of all, um, libertarians are always telling people how they don't know about basic economy, basic economics, and they don't have business experience. I love that. I love being talked down to by somebody who thinks I don't know what I'm talking about, and that's great. But anyways, um, it, 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 Dean, the question remains, though, if charging the market rate is wrong, how much should one charge? Hmm, I'm going to say zero dollars. It should all be free. We shouldn't charge any <laughs> any rent at all. You know, I, w- we could talk more seriously, I guess, about how housing is wrapped up in the market in a minute here. But I think what is wild is that the the, the idea that these questions are posed as rhetorical ones, yeah. I guess, just shows you kind of the weakness of the ability to think them through. Right. Uh, it is not an absurd question to say how much should you charge for housing or how much should housing cost? Um, maybe as one quick example, in a variety of socialist countries, there are lots of laws about things like 
uh, rent should never be more than uh, like 25% uh, of your income, um, of a family's income and so on. And there have been lots of experiments in doing those kinds of things in different countries and uh, gradiating that in a number of ways, right? Like, uh, it's not the case that there is sort of no history of thinking differently about these things. But uh, I guess the funniest thing about these kinds of paragraphs is uh, if you were to mount the same exact argument against it, you would literally have to say, aha, they say that uh, Ramsey's critics don't understand basic economics. But on the contrary, I'm saying they do not understand basic <laughs> economics. <laughs> you could leave it at that and make literally just as strong of an argument. So uh, in a minute, I guess we'll we'll make a stronger one. I think we're going to commit to that. But uh, I think it's important just to recognize you know, that uh, at some point, these sorts of accounts do always just kind of give the lie by basically refusing to do analysis. Yeah, exactly. Um, the analysis of sort of like right wing people is always I mean, OK, this is like, of course, there are there are some more deeper, deeper thinkers. But often when it comes down to blogs like this or online discourse, the uh, the rhetoric is always just that you don't understand basic economics and like, that's it. And I've never that people tell me it a lot, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, when you're trying to do <laughs> things like uh, raise the minimum wage or whatever, people are always uh, telling you, you don't understand basic economics. And I got to tell you, I do. I've read a lot of articles and um, it's fine, <laughs> but whatever. Um, okay. So one more paragraph here from Rachel Ferguson at the Acton Institute. She says, if we liberate people to work, own and build first by removing obstacles to doing so, but also through the wise work of personal Christian presence in the lives of economically struggling people motivated by real love. There's simply no substitute for that. Okay, so here's the the picture that we get uh, from the Acton Institute from the people who think that Dave Ramsey didn't go far enough um, is this. Okay, the actually you should feel sorry for landlords. Step one. <laughs> That's it. Step two <laughs> is um, like the um christians uh ha, to, they can be good they okay whether or not christians can be good business people is complicated you know it's actually it, it's very complicated and like how would you better serve people as a christian other than just doing business honestly and with integrity and kind of letting the market sort of sort it out because like that's what it's very good at doing and in fact if you want a more just and equitable world what you need to do is make sure that people can um <laughs> work, own, and build by removing obstacles and also mentoring them with a Christian presence in their life, which which means nothing, honestly. Um, it's just sort of empty rhetoric. It means more coffee dates, unfortunately. It means more coffee dates. It means like a, a right to work state. It means, I don't know, <laughs> like your landlord can just, uh, doesn't need a, a building permit or whatever. No one needs to come inspect the property. That's what it means. Um, and it's completely vacuous and sort of, brain dead thinking i think there's like nothing really serious here other than just sort of like right-wing talking points wrapped up with some like christian rapping and that's garbage so we can talk about housing in a minute but i think that there's like you know there's two pieces of this right the first piece is like is is the market actually an arbiter of what is good is it actually like the act institute thinks is it like actually good at uh, allocating resources in an efficient way um or is it not and then there's the mark there's the whole question about uh housing so let's talk about the market first. Um, Dean, what do you think? Is the economy an efficient uh, allocator of resources to people? You know, I got to say no. <laughs> I got to say no. Um, yeah, I, I think, well, there's lots of examples you can pick and people probably already know many of them. You know, these kinds of stories make headlines every once in a while. But uh, capitalism is especially remarkable in its ability to waste and uh, destroy otherwise perfectly good things that are created and, and made. Uh, I was just recently reading um, some stuff on uh, food production in um, in Canada and the U.S., and reading about how like so much produce that is grown is destroyed because uh, of, well, two reasons. Either uh, they want to create a scarcity in the market in order to uh, raise prices on agricultural goods, uh, or they know that some uh, like food items will not be sold at market because they're ugly or they're you know perfectly fine to eat but like not aesthetically pleasing. They don't look good on the shelf, right? Uh, so they just throw them away, right? And uh, there are like so many tons of food every year is just destroyed for literally no reason other than to appease the the bizarre machinations of, of market logic. 
you can find lots of other examples of this, but I think the key is that capitalism, more than anything else, is not based on meeting needs uh, efficiently, you know, identifying them and then connecting people to how to sort of get their needs met. Uh, it is primarily based on things like uh, intentional destruction in order to maximize profits, right? Or it's based on creating the conditions by which a person can turn a profit uh, or creating the needs in certain people that they can then fill by, uh, you know, offering a particular product or whatever it might be. So uh, the myth that capitalism is kind of a natural set of laws uh, is just that. It's a, a big myth. And it's important to recognize it actually involves a lot of intentionality. And a lot of that intentionality has uh, quite a bit to do with, you know, um, things that if we really thought about it would probably not be our values. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the food waste example is such a strong one. Um, so, of course, um, ugly food, it gets thrown away um, intentionally. It, like, food is destroyed intentionally to create scarcity. Um, there's actually a huge history of that, um, like the destruction of um, coffee beans, actually, to create mm -hmm. uh, scarcity amongst, like, mass-produced types of coffee. Um, it's, you know, it's completely illogical, you know? I mean, like, well, coffee is, like, one thing, I suppose. People want it and need it, I guess, in different ways. But, like, you know, throwing away food that you could otherwise just feed the people is kind of bonkers. Um, there's an article that actually came out today um, that is really fascinating from Al Jazeera. Uh, the title of the article is Chile's Desert Dumping Ground for Fast Fashion Leftovers, which is a good title. <laughs> I'm all about it. Anyways, <laughs> um, the article is about this sort of uh, interesting area of Chile in the desert, which is sort of like um, uh, it's like this like free zone when it comes to like shipping and trading, I guess. Um, you know, it's like an area of the country that goods can be before the tariffs are paid on them. Uh, so anyways, it became this like um, kind of awful dumping ground for like unsold clothing. Um, so like, you know, Chile or other people, uh, I mean, companies, not Chile, like the state necessarily. Um, but like, uh, you know, big corporations, they're shipping and receiving and buying uh, like fast fashion in bulk from places like China or like India or whatever. And like. You know, they're trying to get it to Europe or the United States. I don't know, whatever. But it, it arrives in Chile, and that's, like, the important part. And um, there are just, like, tons and tons of clothes that are sitting in, like, the desert of Chile because uh, no one decided to pay the tariffs on them or decided that they were going to, like, deal with them. So there's just, like, um, the article said something like 60,000 tons of clothing just, like, sitting out in the desert hmm. in Chile for, like, no okay. no real reason. Right. It's just out there because um, it I mean, exactly the reason you said a minute ago. Right. It wasn't profitable. So, like, why bother? Right. If you can't turn a profit on it, just let it sit out there. Um, I mean, you know, um, clothing is a thing that people need, though. Right. Like you got to you got to have it. You got to have socks for your feet and underwear for your body. Um, but like it, it's a real need. But um, in this case, it's just like um it's it's probably like overproduced, but also it's like not really it's not even produced to meet anyone's need. It's just like sitting there. Right. Um, it's yeah. actually really I mean, it's pretty gross if you think about it. Um, if you think about the the amount of waste versus the amount of things that people need, it is downright disgusting. And I don't like it. Uh, it's also like layers of waste because you have the waste of the the goods, the commodities, but there's also the waste of all the things uh, that went into getting totally. those goods, right? It's a waste of people's labor time. It's a waste of resources. It's a waste of capital. Like somebody spent money to have those things made uh, or like in the case of growing food, like the labor was done, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody went out there and they did what they needed to do in order to make that that produce uh, produce and then picked it and everything else, right? Or they they got these clothes made and everything. Uh, all those people got paid, uh, underpaid most likely. And at the end of the day, it didn't even matter, right? Uh, somebody on the other end was like, ah, I'll just eat those costs. It will cost me more to actually make this useful to somebody else, right? The exchange value is worth more than the use value in a boring Marxist term I yeah guess. and not only uh, that though too it's yeah. it's a huge waste of carbon right i mean think of all of the carbon that had to be right, burned right. to produce uh you know an ear of corn or whatever and now it's just like right. completely burnt for no reason um so not yeah, only is or to get it to chile yeah the clothes or whatever. totally yeah exactly so not only is it like an exploitative situation for people and it's stupid but also it's just like you know environmentally destructive it's ecocidal 
it's it's a dumb way to live. It's not um, I don't know. It's hard to believe that you could look at a situation like that. I mean, and that's like the norm for capitalism. It's not like these are like the exception that proved the rule or something. These are the rule. Right. Um, it's amazing that you could look at that and think like, yep, this is a good way for the world to work. This is exactly why I like the market because it does things so efficiently. Like clearly not. Right. Uh, all right. Well, we keep uh, promising that we're going to get to capitalism and housing specifically. So let's make the turn. We got to bring this back to Dave Ramsey and his bad housing ideas. We do. Um, you know, food and clothes are not the same thing as housing, uh, even though capitalism has commodified all these things and tries to pretend that they are basically the same thing, um, at least done, you know, on paper as commodities. So, Matt, I don't know. Give us a quick, very brief, maybe alternative story about capitalism. If it's not just a neutral arbiter, um, what is it? And then maybe we'll connect it up to uh, housing in particular. Yeah, I'll do my best. So capitalists tell themselves a really particular story about market forces. Like that's the whole point of this conversation so far, right? It's either, like Dave Ramsey says, a neutral force in the world that you have to kind of like deal with and acquiesce to. I mean, Dave Ramsey likes the market. We don't need to be you know, weird about it. Um, So it's either a neutral force, though, that you have to deal with, or it's like actively a good thing that you think you should embrace, like the Action Institute. However, there's a different way to think about all of these things, Uh, a different way to think about markets, a different way to think about capitalism. And I'm going to use some very strong language here. Um, In Capital, a book that we all all know and love on this podcast, um, Marx says that capital comes dripping from head to foot from every pore with blood and dirt. <laughs> it's not a it's not a neutral thing. It's not a good arbiter or uh, allocator of goods. None of that. Uh, it's actually a brutally stupid um, system that shovels money toward people who don't really work for it, <laughs> and um, exploits and uses up people who um, who do work hard. Uh, as I was thinking through this today, I was um, uh, I was reminded of this quote um, from a. Um, there was a, a worker from the Amazon facility in Bessemer. Uh, they were commenting on the recent, um, like, the tornadoes that killed Amazon workers in Edwardsville, Illinois. And anyways, the the Amazon worker in Bessemer said, uh, Amazon, they treat us just like, you know, we're a body, we're there, and when we're used up, they throw us away. And I think that's such a good um, a good explanation for how capitalism works, right? The, the uh, people at the bottom that are doing the producing, it doesn't care about them whatsoever. Um, it only gives any kind of preference for the people at the top making it all kind of happen in this uh, this stupidly organized way. At the core of the capitalist assumption in all of this, though, is that the economy is just like a thing that exists apart from human agency, that it's like detached. Right. Like that's the assumption. If it's neutral, if it's if, if it's just a thing that kind of works or it carries itself through with inertia, it's just a thing that you don't have to you don't have really any kind of say in. But to believe that the economy is like beyond human control obfuscates the reality of the situation, right? Things could be different if we really wanted them to be. Um, and that's not to say that capitalism is easily toppled or the market is like, it can be easily planned out or whatever, right? It's complex. That's true. But at the end of the day, capitalism is a network that humans created and a network that humans have the most power to intervene in at any given moment. So thinking otherwise is, is, is evidence of what Marx calls commodity fetishism. So commodity fetishism is a way of thinking that obscures the material existence of commodities as something that like workers actually make and produce with their own hands and like sweat and blood. And it assumes a type of magical thinking about like the, the commodities that are produced or the value that's produced with them. Right. Um, it just kind of thinks of a, a thing appearing out of sort of a system and there it is. You don't think about the worker that actually made it. And that's kind of the same thing that's happening with the economy and like markets and this whole Dave Ramsey situation is that like to think of them as just like neutral or sort of immutable things that like Dave Ramsey himself is not responsible for is think is, is a commodity fetishist way of thinking. It's it's um it's saying that like, well, you know, whatever, it's just a thing that happens. I don't really have any say over it. I'm not, you know, myself even participating. I'm just a guy that kind of obeys the rules and like, well, and trying to be my best or whatever. But that's completely absurd. Uh, Dave Ramsey reproduces the market every time he, you know, brings rent up or whatever. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, this is a good time to pivot into thinking about housing as a commodity in particular, right? Uh, so commodity fetishism, um, we talked about that a while ago, we did like an episode on, I think, France Hinkle and Merritt and talked more about it. So you could listen to that if you want more. But the short of it is um, when you hear fetishism uh, in the Marxist sense, don't think of it in the Freudian way. Um, I mean, they are related, but <laughs> not in the way that you think. Um, it's uh, basically like 
what Marx means is when we see commodities, when you go to the store, right, and you buy something, when you buy a commodity, uh, a, a piece of food, a fruit, a Pop-Tart, when you go to the store and you buy Pop-Tart, you, uh, you don't usually think about, like, all the labor, as Matt was just saying, that went into getting the Pop-Tart made and packaged and to the store so that you can buy it, right? You just buy it because you need it. You want to use it, you want to eat it, and you, you take it home. Um, but the fact is, there is kind of a whole story underneath of all these relationships that go into making that thing a commodity, and uh, commodities are what make the market go round. They are the things that capitalists sell to each other and to uh, other people. And um, we sort of are trained in, in capitalist ways of organizing our society to see the commodities as sort of independent objects that are just for our use, right? Rather than, and, and for our, our, you know, monetary loss or gain, I guess. Uh, but we don't see them as objects with stories um, or things with stories. So when we think about housing as a commodity and something that has been fetishized, that means that when we think of something like the housing market and we think of houses as commodities on that market, we don't think about uh, all the things that have to happen in order for the house to be a thing that could be bought or sold at all, right? Like, it's kind of bizarre if you think about it, like, the fact that to have shelter, to have a place where you can stay out of the rain and stay warm in the winter, uh, all that kind of stuff. The fact that that itself is a commodity, a thing that can be bought or sold in a number of different ways is so strange. <laughs> like there is no law in human history that says that thing, whatever that shelter is, has to be something you buy and sell in the same way that like for the most part, with some exceptions, air is not a commodity that we buy and sell, at least not right now. <laughs> Who knows what the future holds, right? Um, but housing has been commodified in capitalism. Uh, housing, the way that we relate to it is commodified. We, If we want to move somewhere, we have to think about either buying housing or renting from somebody who owns a house. Um, and then, you know, people like landlords have to think about housing as an investment uh, and what kind of returns are they going to get on it. So that's one piece of housing. When housing gets commodified, it gets wrapped up in all these weird market relations and market logic, especially profit and accumulation, right? So on the capitalist side, uh, housing is primarily a way of making money and uh, reproducing money, getting more and more money. Whereas for those of us who are on the, the living side, who need housing to live, um, that's not our primary concern. <laughs> we we are not looking to make money by renting uh, a dwelling, right? You're going to lose money that way, uh, by definition. So the fact is, like, housing markets, right, the thing that determines what these commodities are bought and sold at, the prices and so on, those markets are not driven just by supply and demand based on people's needs. They go up and down depending on tons of factors. Uh, many of them are obviously very bad, so, for example, like a speculative housing investor might buy up a ton of properties with the intention of selling them or renting them or however they want to do it. But the purpose that they are buying the properties for is to make more money. They have no intention of living in those properties. So housing, things that people do really need to live in, it gets sucked up into the kind of like imaginary world of speculative capital where the market goes up because investors are buying at investor prices and then selling to other investors who are willing to pay those investor prices, you know, with the intention of making more profit. And that prices out people who actually live in uh, a particular area or want to live in an area for literally no other reason than rich people want to be richer. So let me connect this quick to Dave Ramsey and then I'll pause, I guess. Um, so when Dave Ramsey is talking about like the housing market just sort of going up and down and, you know, somebody is uh, like their their uh, income to rent ratio is off or whatever. Um, he is uh, engaging in that kind of magical thinking, right? That uh, that imaginary thinking that the market just reflects, I don't know, like e efficiencies. It gets things where they need to go based on efficient market logic. In fact, it reflects the desire of capitalists to make money. And it reflects their ability to make money using things like housing, which is not a good idea. <laughs> it's a very bad idea for human society. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's such a the the speculative investing around housing is such a good example of the ways that I mean, commodity fetishism works for sure. It's just like it reflects the ways that uh, 
you know, the pure fantasy around like how much something costs becomes a reality, <laughs> you know, it materializes through um, through speculative investing and in, like housing. Um, but it does also demonstrate, too, that like, I don't know, um, landlords are responsible for that. I mean, they, they play a part in the in the in the regime of like investing in housing in certain areas. And like Dave Ramsey, obviously a rich guy, like, um, <laughs> you know, you got to imagine he's probably out there. I don't know his whole portfolio situation. I don't know like what he's got investments in, but like housing is probably one of them clearly. So it's not like he uh, is, um, <laughs> is not involved in, in um, speculative markets and like driving up the cost of a neighborhood. It's also bonkers too, because like it, again, like to the conversation about the allocator of resources, like, if you in in a city, in an area, in a region or whatever, if you continually drive up the prices of housing, people who do service work literally cannot live in that place. Mm-hmm. Like right. it's not that's not efficient. It's not efficient to make sure that people who are like are of lower incomes can't live in the place where they work. That's inefficient. Extremely so. It's just a, a it's just dumb. Right, exactly. Um, and it's also maybe worth pointing out here too, like, you know, I, I mentioned speculative investing is, is one thing, but that's not the only, uh, factor in, in market rents. There's other ones like Matt mentioned earlier, uh, your property value might change based on environmental factors. There's a long history of racism and classism that affect, uh, housing prices and so on. But, you know, the big thing is, uh, is that logic of capital drives all kinds of different parts of housing. Right. So it drives uh, the construction of new housing, for example. It, it doesn't make good business sense for a developer to build housing in a place where people are not willing to pay the most that they can pay in order to you know, get a good return on that investment. Um, it's true that there are like developers who, you know, they may, they will build housing for kind of the middle market and so on because there's a market there, too. Right. It's not just the super rich and everybody needs housing and so on. But the fact is, by definition, they're trying to get the most out of that that they can. So when you think of something even like uh, housing construction, or if you think about uh, rents is another one, right? Like uh, if market rent is a thing that goes up for a variety of reasons, uh, but one reason that it definitely does not go up is that people are able and willing to pay the rent. (laughs) (laughs) That is not a factor in rent prices going up, right? There's other factors. There are factors like people buying rental units and then trying to rent them out at certain prices. And basically, it's a bit of a, a game of chicken, right? Like, uh, in the rental market, uh, people who rent out prices are are making a bet that they can get people to spend enough money to rent a particular apartment. And sometimes they win that bet and sometimes they lose it. But the fact is, they are the ones who set the terms, not the renters. Uh, are, you know, a person at the Acton Institute is going to say, well, they can only really charge what people are willing to pay, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah. And if people aren't able to pay, the prices will go down. But that is not how it no. works. It's a, it's a game of chicken, and renters always lose. No, it's it's absurd because it's not that you can only charge what people are willing to pay. You can only charge what like other people are charging, right? <laughs> like that's it. It's a, right. it's a I guess you know it's um it all has to do with the the precedent set in certain areas by other landlords. It has nothing to do with what people are willing to pay. I mean, willing, people are willing to pay nothing, but like it doesn't it doesn't mean the landlords are going to pay are going to charge you nothing for rent. Right, and I mean just to give a concrete example, even like um, the apartment that I live in right now, without revealing too much about myself or doxing myself, <laughs> the apartment I live in, uh, I've been here almost ten years, and it is a, an extremely small, not great apartment. And I already paid too much for it when I moved here because uh, I live in a big city and so on. Um, in just the time that I've lived here, like if I moved out of this apartment, our landlord would probably charge about double what I rent right now because I live in, thankfully, a apartment that is subject to a certain amount of rent controls and so on. Um, and that is wild because if I move out, the apartment will not be renovated. It will not be fixed. It will probably not even be repainted, really, Uh uh, it wasn't when I moved in, <laughs> for example. Um, and nevertheless, the market value will have doubled, right? So the use value of the apartment will basically have, it, there it, There will not be major improvements. Um, in fact, it, it, in some ways, it's probably even worse, right? Because of wear and tear and so on. But uh, the market says that you could double it. And like, what a completely bizarre, <laughs> inefficient, uh, not helpful system for regular human beings. <laughs> yeah, it really isn't. Okay. 
So at this point, um, we've talked about how wild Dave Ramsey is. We've talked about how even wilder the people at the acting suit is. We've kind of refuted them, and hopefully we've made the case that um, capitalism is not a good allocator of resources. It's not efficient, and housing is a very weird thing to make into a commodity. It's like it, it requires a certain level of magical thinking. It requires you to sort of buy into a particular type of narrative and myth about um, what it means to, like, be a human person and alive that you have to, you know, charge, <laughs> you have to pay, you have to pay to live somewhere, which is just a bonkers idea. Um, if you think about it really hard <laughs> and I encourage you to, um, but I guess I want to, <laughs> let's, let's talk about one more thing really quickly before we, we sign this one off. The, the whole thing at the top, like the whole reason the controversy started was that Dave Ramsey thinks that like you can be a good Christian and still charge people rent, um, you know, higher and higher rents. And um, if, if that means like displacing somebody, I guess so be it. And I guess um, from the perspective of uh, Christian moral thinking, I want to say, no, you can't do that. That's actually not (laughs) true. I mean, Christians have been shitty landlords for a long time, right? There's such a strong precedent. But what I'm saying... They invented it. They invented it even. (laughs) Okay. But I guess what I want to say is that Christians ought not to. Um, There's enough reason in the... uh, in Christian tradition, there's enough, um, you know, Christian witness to think that actually there's a different way you could act in the world. Um, that uh, loving people doesn't mean displacing them by raising uh, their rents. That's not a good. <laughs> that's not a good way to think about Christian love, right? Um, Jesus was. God was born into a person, uh, born to a working class family. You know, like if you think that, uh, I, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is at the, at the end of the day, if you think that um, you can be a good Christian person and still evict Jesus, like you're thinking wrong. That's not true. That's bad. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus was not incarnated as a landlord to landlords. For yeah, sure. exactly. Um, Jesus was uh, a yeah. worker. He was, um, I mean, a low, a low income person his entire life and like didn't work for a good chunk of it. So, uh, you know, when he was like ministering, I guess that doesn't count as work, but maybe it does. I'm not. That's not the point. (laughs) The point is (laughs) he was not born a landlord. Um, Dave Ramsey would evict Jesus if he had the chance. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe one other piece to sign off to is like, what would the Christian response to this be? Uh, It would not be to lean into the commodification of housing, but to figure out some alternatives. Right. Obviously, the big problem is here. The big problem here is capitalism. And we're not going to solve that in whatever, probably my lifetime, (laughs) unfortunately. But, you know, there's lots of ways of addressing the housing crisis, even under capitalism. Um, You know, building public housing is very important. It's something that capitalist countries can do and have done. Um, Housing cooperatives, those are little islands of resistance under capitalism. Um, You know, bullying your city councilor to talk about rent controls or prohibitive taxes on speculative property purchases, all that kind of stuff. Like those are not going to end the, the capitalization and commodification of housing, but they are going to make an actual difference. Um, it, it matters that Christians intervene at those yeah. levels and, and uh, yeah, try to make a difference. It does matter way. a lot, right? Like, like you said, I mean, capitalism is not coming down immediately. Um, the revolution is not just around the corner, unfortunately, but like, People should be able to live with dignity in a place uh, that is safe and like free from harm where, you know, the landlord will not like um, not turn the heat on. So people are forced to uh, run electrical heaters and accidentally burn the entire place down or something. Right. Like Christians, that 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 should be an expression of Christian love is intervening in situations where landlords are taking advantage of people. And um, we should be fighting for bigger picture um, types of things as well, like like we said. But like in the meantime, fighting for people's dignity is a pretty good place to start. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can also um, give us a nice iTunes review. That'd be really cool of you to do. Um, But, you know, it's your decision in the end. Because of because of the freedom of the market and the freedom of iTunes reviews, we believe in that strongly here. So um, do what do what thou will, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> our intro music is by Amari Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. 
There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, you keep your hoods up You keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up Well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have.